Good morning. That, that's our family, and I have a photo here. There, I put them back in the back, by the, in the foyer, by that little room, and you're welcome to take one of these cards and stick it in your Bible, in your windows or refrigerators where you put them. Please take one. And just a few announcements. There's also some um, little book, booklets like this, about 12 pages that I wrote. It says stories from my life. It, they're devotional stories that talk about my ministry and how I became a missionary to Bolivia, how I got there. And it tells more about my person, my personal walk in the Lord through the last 25, 30 years. In addition to that, there is a, a annual report that from last year that goes into detail about the, the ministries in Bolivia that my wife and I have. We are five. My wife and daughter are in this morning in worship at uh, Cochabamba, Bolivia. And it's a delight to be here. And my wife and the church there is praying for you. When I am at church this morning, they pray for us and for the body here. And they are very pleased to be a part of this ministry through prayer. Even though they don't know you, they're your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I appreciate you all because you're part of my extended family, brothers in Christ, and the Lord uh, knows that each of us belong to each other. We're an extension of one another in the body. A little bit about myself. I am 21 years in Bolivia. I went single, and I got married after five years of being there to a national, and she's the delight of my life as, as my wife and mother. And uh, she did not come back with us. We're traveling around a lot, and she has other ministries and things. To Please pray for her. And also for us, as you remember us. Um, I'm the, I went there as a teacher in a school, as a missionary school for nationals. Our purpose as a school is strictly to encourage young teens, children, to know the Lord, to grow in the Lord, and to be prepared for eternity. And that's our, that's our goal as a school. And if some of you might have teaching abilities and would like to go down. If some of you know people that are just out of college or have retired, we need Christian teachers to come down and participate in our ministry as a school. It's a small school, about 60 in high school total, and I've been there 20 years. It's, it's a delight. Every year is different. We need teachers for the high school as well as for elementary. Every year there are children and teens who, who become partners in Christ with us. They, they belong to Christ. They, they will grow. It's, it's my purpose as, as a teacher. It's my purpose as a father and as a, as a missionary there to encourage these young people that are 12 to 18 years old to walk and persevere in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all of our goal, isn't it? That our children and that our students and people that we're around will know the Lord and come to, to full assurance that, that they belong to him and that they are walking and progressing forward in the spiritual life. And that's why I went down. I'm still there. The school is still there. And if someone who were interested and wanted to teach, they would provide a stipend for your help, help and, uh, and assistance in, in uh, being down there for the time that you might be down there. In addition to that, my wife, when we got married, began, and she, she is a gifted child evangelist. And I don't know anyone that's better. I, honestly, I don't. My mother was. She was a. She was a. My mother was a beautiful person and, and loved the Lord and taught me and my my brothers and sisters. But my wife is super in all that she does, and she began a Bible club when we were just married in our home. It began with ten and twenty, and then it grew, and it was like, kind of like in Mark two when Jesus was in the in the house and the people wanted to get in and and it was so full they couldn't get in the door and so they come down through the roof. Our house was filled, 35, 40, 50 kids. And so after a couple of years or a year, we moved to the school, and they had a bigger room where we were, and we had about 150 every, sun, every Saturday, 150 children that my wife would teach, and we would encourage in the Lord and help to know the Lord as, as much as we could. And after a while, we began to think, maybe the Lord might have a separate place for us of our own, rather than to go to school, set up, tear down, and we were praying, and the Lord provided in, in a marvelous way 
um, a building that's not it's about half as big as this facility on, on the surfaces. There's no basement. And we can squeeze 200 people in there. And yesterday I talked to my wife. There were 120 children, 15 mothers. We had six classes instead of five, as they said here. And the, the Lord is ministering in our neighborhood. We live in an area that is not poor, neither is it rich. It's kind of middle class or maybe less than middle class. But there is no evangelical church there where we are. Um, we're the only outreach that I know of, except there's a small Pentecostal church with three families a little ways away. But we're the only evangelical outreach in that whole neighborhood. Our hurt, heart, our desire would be that in another year or so, what you saw as a building facility would become a place for worship for adults. We are looking into that. My wife and I are not church planters. Um, we do love the Lord. We do love the church. Desire that it, there would be a body of fellowships of believers that would come from our neighborhood into this uh, building and, and it would be, be a place of worship for a number of people. In addition to that, we work in a church, in a brethren church congregation of about 400 people, children and, and adults. Occasionally I'll preach. My wife is a Sunday school teacher and uh, serves the Lord. But this week, next week, she is doing a vacation Bible school. We'll have 200 children there. And so if you think about it this next week, will you please pray for her and for the servants who are teaching the children in the vacation Bible school at our church in Cochabamba, Bolivia. That's us. That's me. Our heart is that God would use us. We, we are involved in ministry with children and, and youth. And, of course, we have a family there as well. And so uh, I, it's a delight for me to be here. And the churches there, or the church that we are part of, are is glad to pray for you this morning. And will you please pray for us as we go back and minister there. So if you have more interest in either our ministry or in the school or in us as people, I'll be glad to share with you. Please, there aren't, aren't a lot of these, but you're welcome to take all the ones that are there of the stories from my life as well as the details of our ministry from 2014. It's an annual report that I had made copies of. So let's go to the Lord's word this morning. And before we do that, let's have a word of prayer that he might bless this time together. And you might look in the Gospel of John chapter 15, where I will begin reading after I pray. John chapter 15. Let's go to the the Lord in prayer. Our Father, you are a delight to us, and we pray that we might be a delight to you this morning, and that our understanding of your purposes in our hearts, in our lives, might be made clear to us through the teaching this morning from your word, that you, Lord, would speak through the Holy Spirit and cause us, Lord, to respond in faith to what you would have us to do. In Jesus' name, we thank you and praise you. Amen. John chapter 15. We're going to start here, and I'll read the first eight verses, but this is not our text I'm going to expound on. But I want to start with the idea of the fruit, the fruitfulness that God desires in our lives. I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As you look at that passage, the word fruit 
is mentioned several times. And there's a progression that appears in verse 2. It says that someone does not bear fruit, no fruit. And from no fruit, it goes on and says you should bear fruit. And then it goes on and says that there's more fruit in verse 2. And when you get to verse 5, it talks about much fruit. And getting down to verse 8 in that passage, it says, In this way, the Father is glorified by bearing much fruit. Now, this morning, I want to ask a question. I'll ask it several times. How much fruit do you want to give to the Lord Jesus? How much do you want to please the Father and glorify Him? Our purpose in life is to glorify the Father and the Son. And we do this by bearing fruit. How much are we pleasing the Lord? No fruit? Maybe a little fruit? More fruit? Much fruit. God desires every one of us to bear much fruit for His glory, for His praise, and for His honor. The Scriptures give us at least two categories, and I think there might be more, but there are two categories of fruit. One type of fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in us is the fruit of the Spirit that's in us. Love, joy, peace, patience in Galatians chapter 2, and also in First Peter or 2 Peter chapter 1. It talks about fruit that the Spirit of God produces in us. And all of us as Christians should be growing inwardly and bearing fruit inwardly that will please the Father. But there's also an external fruit that appears in the life of the believer. And the external fruit is also produced through us by the same Holy Spirit. He works through us to produce fruit that others can see. And that fruit is, are, is your good works. The Lord calls us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully, fully pleasing Him, bearing fruit in every good work. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father. You see, the Christian does not live in a barrel or in a bubble. We live in a world, and our purpose as children of God is to bear fruit that the world can see and honor the Lord. That is one of our many purposes that God has. But fruit is what He desires. The Bible also mentions other types of fruit. The fruit of repentance or the sacrifice of praise, bearing that fruit of lips that bear sacrifice and acknowledge His name. But as we think about fruit, we think about the harvest. And fruit does not just appear. And it, when it's ready, we need to harvest it. And as I looked through scriptures, as I was thinking about this message, it, in my studies, I found that there are seven rules or seven laws that govern how much fruit or how much we can harvest in this world for the Lord Jesus. The scripture is very practical and very basic in what it says. Sometimes it is so practical we, we even do it without thinking that it's biblical. But I found in the scriptures at least seven principles of the harvest. And this morning I want to talk about the harvest of fruit for the glory of God. Seven rules of the harvest that govern how much fruit our lives will bear for the Lord Jesus. The very first rule is found, in, and I'd like you to look at the, as we go through this, I'd like you to look at these verses as we look at them. It is, there's sowing comes before reaping. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 and 2. And some of you may have memorized this one. It says, for everything there's a season. And it goes on and says, there's a time to plant and a time to harvest or time to pluck up. Sowing comes before 
reaping. That's obvious, and no one would think otherwise, but it's biblical. But sometimes we don't understand that in order to harvest a fruit for the Lord Jesus, there has to be a time of investment. That doesn't always bear fruit right away. Oftentimes, the work and the labor that later produces fruit is intensive and unrewarded. There's no glory in plowing. We were going through the, from Salina towards here, and the harvest fields are ready to harvest. They're golden, golden and white, ready for harvest. But you know what? In October last year, there was no one say, singing the glory of plowing those fields. <laughs> it's hard work. It's time-consuming. But you do it in faith, believing that in time, the Lord will produce a harvest that we can reap. But you see, it doesn't just happen. There's a time of seeding, a time of watering, and a time to harvest or to reap. Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. I'd like you to look at Mark chapter 4, which is an interesting passage that also expresses this idea that there's a sequence. It doesn't happen automatically that fruit comes in the first minute that a person's a believer. It takes some investment in the life of that person. Mark 4 says, from 26 to 29, <clears throat> The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows, but he does not know how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. You see, there's a sequence again. Seeds are scattered. It involves work and effort. And you know there are missionaries who are scattering seed even today. But there's no fruit yet. But there's a progression. After seeding comes a time of growth and watering. And watering also is a part of the experience that's need necessary for seed to produce fruit. The seed sprouts. But that's the work of the Holy Spirit. The good seed, the seed that we plant, the seed that's sown is the Word of God. And we need to remember that the Word of God is the seed that bears fruit that's good. A lot of seeds are thrown and sown that are not necessarily what we want to see in the end. But the seed is the Word of God. And that's what we, that's what we sow and plant. And in time, with watering, the Lord causes that seed to sprout and grow. Night and day. We don't know how, but the Lord produces the fruit in us or in others. And finally, the harvest comes, and someone is necessary, needed, to go out into that field and gather the fruit, gather the harvest into the barrels or into the barns. But the seed, I want to make this point clear, is the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. The word of the Lord remains forever, 1 Peter 1. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. There are a lot of people, even Christians, that think that their good works in social areas is what produces fruit. And that's a good thing to do. I, I'm not putting down working in orphanages, doing agricultural help to get people to have water or, or hospital work, ministering to the sick or poor. Those are all things that we should be doing. But the seed that we should be sowing is not our good works, it's the Word of God. Because only the seed of the Word of God can produce change in the heart of man and produce fruit, ultimately, that glorifies and honors the Lord Jesus. At the bottom of your sheet there is a little diagram. I want you to see how the growth of the evangelical church in Bolivia has occurred. You know, 
Latin America has been a, a Catholic country for 500 years from the conquistadors, I don't know when it was, that they came, and it's been Catholic. But the evangelical missionaries that have been in Bolivia have only been there from about 1895, 120 years. And when they came, there were no evangelical believers. None. Zero. And if you look on that chart, the first 50 years, there were hundreds of missionaries. Workers that were seeding and sowing and plowing and scattering with no fruit. 50 years. And then, about the middle of the last century, there was beginning to see the growth of the evangelical church. Every year from about 1960, when missionaries went down, there was harvest ready to gather. People were coming to the Lord. And for 50 years, every 10 years, every decade, the number of Christians, evangelical believers, doubled. 2%, 4%, 8%. In 2000, there was about 16% of the population of Bolivia that are evangelical believers. Now, I have to qualify that. That includes all stripes of Christians, including the, the charismatic and, and um, Pentecostal, which is probably the greatest percentage growth. But there is a progression that demonstrates this very fact. Seeding comes before reaping. And we should not be discouraged when people go to Muslim areas or to India or to other places where there is no gospel and they come back in six years and say, no fruit yet. There was a missionary that went to a Muslim country some years ago. This was before, like quite a while ago. And he, he was sent and, the, and he went on a boat. It was a period of time, seven years or so, and he came back to express to his supporting churches what he had accomplished in those seven years. And they asked him, what fruit have you, get, have, have you, have you seen? He said, I'm sorry, I've seen no fruit. Well, certainly you've been sowing the seed. No. He said, I have not sown any seed. Well, maybe you've been watering the soil. No, I haven't even been watering the soils. He said, what have you been doing these seven years? He said, the best I can do, the best I've been able to do, is take some rocks out of the land. You see, there's work. It's not always glorious. It's not always visible. But the seeding of the word of God involves work. And often, people say, where's the fruit? But that's the Lord's work. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, the Lord only honors one worker. There's all sorts of Christians, but only one worker that God honors, the Holy Spirit. That's his worker. We're only instruments that the Holy Spirit works through. And as much as I abide in Christ, through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit works. It's not me. So if you see some fruit in my life, it's the Holy Spirit, and we need to honor Him for it. People have said to me, oh, I'm so glad you're going. You've done such marvelous work. Well, it might be that I'm doing some work, but you know the Holy Spirit is the worker that God honors, not necessarily human efforts. Because those who abide in Christ, as we read, these are the ones that produce fruit for the Lord. And I want to mention also that you guys are involved in the harvest, at least in the sowing and the watering, because it's the prayers of the saints that waters the seed that produces fruit. Do you know that you realize that your work in prayer is every bit as much as important as my work or others who are working in sowing the seed and preaching. We all have a specific task. And you are here, and by your prayers, you are watering God's green earth for the glory of his name. How many of you are praying for individuals to come to the Lord? 
You know, let me just tell you, my wife has 12 brothers and sisters, and of those 12, she and her sister, maybe two sisters, are the only believers. But you know what? My wife sheds tears for those others. And we share. The seed is going out. God will produce the fruit. But it's the prayers of the saints that water the soils that produce fruit, ultimately, for the glory of God. Look with me, or, if, if, or you can just, and, um, let me see where it is. Exodus 17. This is a story from the Old Testament. You don't realize that this, this story about Joshua fighting the Amalekites, and you've probably heard this before. Exodus 17. This is a story when Joshua went down into the valley, and the Amalekites were a great host. And Moses sent Joshua and the armies of Israel against this great host of the Amalekites to fight against them. But Moses said in 17 of Leviticus, or of Exodus, I'm going to go up on the mountain. Now listen to this as we read verses 11 to 14. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And whenever Moses held up his hand in prayer, Israel prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek. Now I ask you, where was the battle fought? Who was doing the work? Yes, you need people to fight the battles, to sow the word, but there is so much power in your prayers when you're holding up your hands that God would listen to his church crying out for the harvest to be brought in. You see, it's not just one person. It's the body. And all of us together are one. Your prayers perhaps are what bring my wife's sisters and brothers to the Lord. Who knows? But God desires that his people would water the earth with their tears and prayers for those who are lost without Christ. Who are you praying for? How much fruit do you want to carry to the Lord? How much fruit is in your basket? There are people, and I, I, I don't pray as much as I ought, I know, but I, I, I'm in a group of prayer, of prayer meetings, and they pray for their health, they pray for their work, they pray, pray for their children, that they're not in trouble. How much are we praying for the salvation of souls? How much are we weeping over our, our family members that don't know the Lord Jesus? You see, sometimes I think our prayers are superficial or ingrown, but God desires fruit that will be for eternity. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this, in our school, my son Andy is not here, I'm praying. There's nine guys in his class. And Andy is, Andy is, he's a believer. There's two or three others that are believers. But the, the nine guys, they, they kind of unite. And Andy's a follower. And those nine, there's, there's five or six of them that are, that are worldly in every way. But you know, I, I, I almost daily lift them up, saying, God, speak to their hearts. And as I have opportunity in chapels or other times, to pray for these six guys and Andy and, my, and these other seven, that that group of just nine young men will all, before they finish school, know the Lord. That's my prayer. Who are you praying for? That they might know the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Lamentations 2.18 says, Let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest. Give your eyes no respite. Cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift up to him the lives of your children who faint for hunger. Now the context was quite different than this morning. But the point of it is that we need to cry out, pour out our hearts. Let our tears fill this earth to water the seed that's sown that our children and those around us might know the Lord. To bear fruit for him and for his honor and glory and praise. Second law that governs the harvest, we reap what we sow. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. It's very evident that when you sow wheat, you get wheat. And this has application that is very evident in our society The society is reaping today the harvest of what has been sown for the last 50, 60, 70 years. And it's not just in Christian circles that people are talking. It's everyone. When, when you hear of the killings and the, and the terrorists and the, and the hatred and the racism and the violence and the, and the sexual changes, it's only reaping what has been sown. It shouldn't come as a surprise. Because when you, when I was, let me just give my, my story just a little bit. I grew up in a public school. And in fifth grade, every morning we read the Bible in school and we prayed. Said the Lord Prayer and pledged allegiance to the flag. Now, a few years later, when I was in middle school, they didn't do that anymore. Now, listen, what happened? The society of the humanistic, naturalistic world said, we need to sow in education our philosophies. And they did. Sixty years ago, they said, no more Bible, no more religion, and you see the results. Fifty years later, there's a harvest. <laughs> it doesn't just, it's not just in one place, it's around the world. The seeds of philosophies and ungodly principles and worldliness that have been sown are now bearing fruit. And many of it in our families, much of it in our homes, in our culture. And we say, where did this come from? We shouldn't be surprised. You reap what you sow. And that's just a principle not only in God's word, it's a principle that's evident in society. In Timothy, 2 Timothy, let me read this passage. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want to call out some ideas there. 2 Timothy chapter 3, understand this in the last days. You know, the Bible speaks about the last days, and I believe we are in the last days. But it says, these are the evidences of what will happen in the last days. And there's three things specifically. There's 19 different areas, 19 different qualities of life that Paul or mentions to Timothy. Let me just note or, or call out three. It says people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, and in verse 4, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, when you think about it, you go back in time, not too long ago, they said, how do we love ourselves? We have to love ourselves. That was the whole thing. There was a whole time in the 1970s, you got to learn to love yourself. I was in a church, it was not an evangelical church really, I was in a church and the pastor got up for the speaker and said, we have to teach our children how to love themselves. And I said, that's nonsense. <laughs> we don't have to teach people how to love themselves, it's so ingrained in everyone. Everyone loves themselves. Even the Bible says so. But that's what they said. We have to teach people how to love themselves to feel good. Or, we said, if you look at the world around us, what are the three things that fill our lives? 
Pleasure, money, and self-love. What's sown gets reaped. It's not news. It's just the natural sequence that you reap what you sow. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. What are we sowing in the lives of our children? What are we sowing in our work and those around us? With our families? I think it's um, Deuteronomy 6 has a very, for Father's Day, a very good passage. I hope you fathers would read this. If, um, Deuteronomy chapter 6, where it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And then it goes on and it says, This is what the father should do in his home. You know, it's the father's responsibility to sow in his own children. Godliness. And it mentions in Deuteronomy 6, when you rise up in the morning, when you're walking by the way, when you lie down at night, put in the doorpost in your house, everywhere you go with your children, you are to sow the seed of the word of God that your children might grow up to become godly. But you know, we reap what we sow. What are you sowing, fathers, in your homes? Now, I don't think my son will mind, but as I grew up, my desire is that my sons, my daughter, will be godly. And I haven't done a good job, but my heart, as they were little, was that they would hear the word of God. And we, every evening around the dinner table, until they were 12 years old, we memorized verses. And I read to them at night. I prayed with them. But what are we doing for our children that would encourage them and sow in them the word of God that they might grow up to be godly? You see, we reap what we sow. Men, fathers, God has put upon you the responsibility for the spiritual development and the seeding of the soil of your children's hearts. How much fruit do you want to bear for the Lord Jesus? Yes, it's good for our children to have everything that, that this life can offer, to a good home, to have a good education, that they would have the blessings of abundance that often is associated with this world we live in. But how much more should we sow in them that which is eternity, the eternal word of God? Number three. We reap in proportion to what we sow. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 says, Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Jesus said, The Father is glorified when we bear much fruit. Remember the sequence? No fruit. Some fruit. More fruit? How much fruit do you want for the Lord? Brothers and sisters, the Father desires that we bear much fruit. How much are we sowing? How much fruit do we want? 2 Timothy 4 says, Preach the word, be ready, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with patience and teaching. Now listen to this. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate teachers to suit their own passions and turn away from the truth. Listen, there's a time coming when people will not listen to us, but while there's time yet for our children in our society, in the church, let's preach the word and let's do it abundantly. Let's sow the seed wherever we can, when we can. The Lord desires much fruit. We reap in proportion to what we sow. Number four, <clears throat> the harvest depends on the condition of the soils. Matthew chapter 13. And you're familiar with this passage. Here then the parable of the sower. Now, 
when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown. This is what was sown in the trodden path. Okay? And as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word of God and receives it with joy. <coughs> Yet it has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecutions on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. It bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. <coughs> Excuse me. The harvest depends on the condition of the soils. Now, we are called to sow seed wherever we are. We, we, are, not ones to, we are not soil samplers. We are sowers. The soil samplers are, is another story. But we are to sow wherever we are. But the hardness of the soil determines how much growth can occur. There may be a poor harvest. And some people out in the fields today are looking at their wheat and saying, what a poor harvest. There was not enough rain. It was too hard of a ground when they sowed the seed. But there are thorns. Listen, there are thorns and there are rocks in the hearts of human people that impede or... Well, thank you, brother. That cause that unfruitfulness might result. And so we should not be surprised in, if we're sowing in, in difficult places that there's not much fruit. Because the fruit and the, the, the growth and the maturity of, of the plants, that we, of the seed that is sown, depends much on how the soil was conditioned. But we need to cultivate and prepare the hearts. And let me go back in history a little bit or in time. 150 50 years ago or 75 years ago, when you spoke about sin and when you spoke about human hearts and the need for salvation, people understood it because the culture, especially in the Midwest, understood that man was sinful. But then you come through this modern and postmodern age when the word of God has been taken out and it has placed thorns and rocks and hardness of heart that you talk to the same age people in the same places and you talk about sin and you talk about the need for salvation and there's, it's like, what? There, there, there's nothing there. And there is a place, and it's even more important now than before, for apologetics and for pre-evangelism. You can't just, you, you can use the word of God and you need to use the word of God, but there needs to be a, in, in evangelism or in, in missionary work or in, in teaching the word of God, there has to, we have to go back to the basics. And we need sometimes to, to do a pre-evangelism of saying why the Islamic faith and why the, the humanistic philosophy of evolution is, is wrong. When, you, when the, with the seeds of evolution have been sown for so many years and you go and preach the Bible and they say, well, <coughs> what about the billions of years? You have to go back. It, it, it's, almost, it's almost, you have to kind of ignore the Bible and, and use apologetics. And there's a place for it more than ever. And we need that. We need people who are intelligent and educated and Christian to give a defense of the gospel so that they can be understood by the intellectuals who have grown up in a world that talks of evolutionary development. It, it just, Paul even recognized that. If you go to Acts chapter 17, you know, Paul preached the gospel better than anyone probably. And when he explained the gospel in Romans, it was very clear. But when he goes to Acts chapter 17 before the the people in, in, in Athens, he didn't preach the same, use the same methods. He used a different method. He said, he used their culture and their, and their worldview. He said, this is what you guys are believing. And then he explained why it was wrong. And then after he under, they understood that, that, that their worldview was wrong, then he was able to present the gospel. He said, this God whom you say you don't know, let me present him to you. 
Paul was using apologetics because that city and that worldview where the people were did not have the necessary background in order to receive the word of God in a manner that would bear fruit. And so he was plowing, if you will, or removing rocks or taking out the thorns so that the seed of the word of God could enter and bear fruit in those lives of those people. And so we should not put down people who are, are, are great men of God doing apologetics. Zachariah, Rabbi Zacharias and some others, Josh McDowell in, in my day, and others perhaps who, who are on the radio or are, are well known as going into campuses, universities, and, and presenting a defense of the gospel that's needed and necessary because the soils are not ready for the direct evangelism. But yes, there's a place for that too. And we need to preach the word always. But we need also to have an understanding of the worldview in which we live with the Christian response from the biblical basis of why evolution is wrong and why God requires every man and woman to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, our worldview is so tainted and our children, listen, if you send your children to public school and even if they go to a Christian school, they are getting in their society a worldview that is contrary to what is the truth of this gospel. And again, I say to you fathers on Father's Day, what are you seeding in, this ch- in your children? And you're responsible for their education. Let's do all we can to keep their hearts gentle so that they can hear the word of God and receive it and there will be much growth. Let me say just a minute here about child evangelism. You have heard probably of the 1040 window, which is geographic, and it's the hardest, most unreached groups of people in the world. Muslim, Africa, through the Middle East, Asia, China, and India. And there's a need for the gospel to be going there. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you, the missionaries who go there are not always harvesting. They're sowing and they're plowing. But they're doing the work of God. But let me tell you about another window. There's the 414 window. And if you've never heard of the 414 window, Google 414 window. It's an amazing, amazing thing. Do you know, it's not a geographic place on the earth. It's a demographics of children, 4 to 14 years old, who have hearts that are tender. Ready to believe. You can tell a 5-year-old anything I told my children I was a tiger until I was nine years old. They believed me. (laughs) They have imagination. God put in their hearts an understanding of simple truths that go beyond what our intellectual mind has been educated can understand. Because the hearts of children are tender. And two-thirds, approximately, of everyone who comes to know the Lord comes to the faith in Christ before they're 14 years old. That's a tremendous window. And every generation, there's an open window. It's not hard to tell a child, you're loved, you're a sinner, you've done wrong, slap your hand. Jesus died for you. Jesus was perfect. You can receive him in your heart. You can live for him. There's all sorts of tools. The worthless book. Children understand easily the basics of the gospel. And if your church, and I'm sure you are, I, I, say, I don't say this thinking you're not, but it, you're, you're, if your church puts emphasis on the window that's wide open, there's a wide open window for receiving the gospel of the hearts that are not filled with rocks or thorns yet. But you know what? That's closing too. You know, in Bolivia, let me tell you this. Average age, Josh McDowell world as well. I see yours too. The average age, Josh McDowell came down to Bolivia a couple of years ago and he told me this, or he, he said this in, in, a, in a seminar he was giving. Bolivia is, in South America is the number one, the number one, and I, it might be the whole world, but in South America, the number one pornographic site for hits, Bolivia. And the average age at which children 
see pornographic videos on internet is eight years old. You see? It's not just us, the sowing seed of God. There's the world around sowing philosophies to eight-year-olds. But there's a window open for child evangelism. And if you... Brothers and sisters, it doesn't take much to help a child to learn that that's right and that's wrong and that God sees them and knows their heart. Child evangelism is a tremendous way to sow where the soil is ripe, ready to receive the word. Invest your money. And I'm not saying invest in us, but invest your money in your children so that that their hearts, while they're still pliable and moldable and tender before God, can receive the word and produce fruit in the harvest of righteousness for the glory and honor of our Father. In the end, we need to sow everywhere. Even older people need to know the Lord. But there's an open window for children especially. And that's, that's my wife's heart and that's my heart too as well. The harvest depends on the Lord, number five. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Neither he that plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Do you know, and I said this already, the Lord honors only one worker, the Holy Spirit. And as much as we like to do works and do things, it's the Holy Spirit in me or in you or in the body that works through us to produce the fruit. It's the Lord. It's his harvest field, but he needs workers. But it's the Lord, the Holy Spirit, working in us and through us. Jesus said, the wind blows where it will. You hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, it's the Lord's work to bring people to salvation. And again in John, he said, those who receive him who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who are not born out of the will of flesh or the will of man, but of God. One waters, one sows, one reaps, but God produces the fruit in us and through us. Which leads us to the sixth rule of the harvest. Matthew nine thirty seven. Jesus said, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. You see, it's the Holy Spirit, but it's you and it's me. One body, one father, one worker that produces fruit. God desires that all of us would bear fruit, but he produces it through the Holy Spirit, but he needs us or he uses us to accomplish that which he desires to do through us so that he would receive honor and praise and glory. But it's the work of the Holy Spirit. But he needs workers. Lift up your eyes and see the fields are white to harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. The saying holds true, one sows and other reaps, but I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. There's lots of needs in, and I know there is in the United States as well. I'm not here to say go overseas. I'm just saying let's all work in the fields because there are people around us and we never know who might need you or me to say, wouldn't you like to know about the Lord Jesus? Wouldn't you like to know that you, when you die, can pass into eternity with the Lord Jesus forever? And it doesn't take an evangelist to share the gospel. It just takes someone who's willing to be available, to come alongside someone who's going through a hard time or has illness, cancer, or perhaps has children that are wayward and say, listen, let's pray about that. I have a Father in heaven who knows your needs and maybe you'd like to pray with me 
about those special needs. And let me tell you, you can have a relationship with him too. But you see, there are people in every country who need the Lord. And they're ready for the Lord. We don't know who it is. Our job is to sow. Jesus said in another place, go out into the highways and byways and compel them to come in. And not everyone came in, but the task that's before all of us is to go into the world, our world, wherever you are, wherever I am, and share the gospel. In a way that's relational, in a way that's apologetics, in, in a sense of, of explaining why the worldviews are wrong and why the Christian worldview is the right one and why this book is the truth and why we can trust it. All of those things are part of the work that's required by the harvesters. And each of us are, in some way or other, called to be part of the harvest that's taking place around the world. The harvest needs workers. Are you willing to bear fruit for the Lord? Are you willing to invest your time spiritually to encourage others that they might know the Lord and grow and produce fruit? How much fruit are you willing? How much fruit do you want to have in your hands before the Lord Jesus when he comes? Little fruit? No fruit? More fruit? How much? How much do you want to honor and glorify your Father? The harvest needs workers. The last rule. The opportunity for harvest will end. Look with me in Jeremiah chapter 8. Now, Jeremiah was in a very hard situation, living in Jerusalem only a few years before it would be destroyed by the Babylonians. And he saw, through the Spirit of God upon him, that the end was near. Jeremiah chapter 8. And he preached a hard message. There's reason why he is called the weeping prophet. Jeremiah 8.20. And the context is that he knew the history of the blessings of the temple and of the, of the glory of God that was in the temple and of the fruitfulness of his people, how God had blessed for so many years. And then he had seen the decline of his culture and knew that God had put an end or would put an end to what was Israel at that time. And in just a few years from this point when we read, he sees the Babylonian army coming and standing against Jerusalem and besieging it and the mothers in that city with their children listen to what he's even sacrificing their children, boiling them to eat. It happened. And listen to what he says, 8.20. The harvest is past. Summer is ended. We are not saved. Do you realize, brothers and sisters, that there's an end to the harvest? In a few weeks, the harvesters that are going through Oklahoma and Kansas will be passing up north and the wheat fields will be cut down and there will be no more harvest this year. There's a time to seed, time to water, time to harvest. But we must understand, whether individually as a person, death comes or society is limited through restrictions by the government. There's no law that says we're going to have freedom in five years to worship here freely. Summer has passed. Harvest has ended. And we are not saved. We need to sow. We need to water. We need to work. While the time is still day. Jesus said... The night is coming when no man can work. Summer is past. Harvest is ended. There are people that are not going to be saved when the Lord Jesus comes. 
there comes an end to the harvest. And I think of Noah. Now, Noah preached, some say 120 years, some say 100 years. He preached the gospel. But in the end, God shut the door. And he said, my spirit will not always strive with man. And I'm not sure all of the significance of that, except I believe that God shut the door, and as much as those people who were standing on the earth and felt the first drops of water hitting their heads, knocking on the door, God did not let them in. God shut the door. But up until that moment in time, when God shut the door, there was an open window, and those people could have received the gospel. But inside, they were safe. But God says, through Jeremiah the prophet, harvest is past, summer is ended, we are not saved. There's no guarantee that there will be freedoms to preach or teach or carry a Bible. In many countries of the world, there are, as you know, severe persecutions against that which is our heritage and our we believe is our right, but we don't know how long we'll have that right in our country. We need to redeem the time, investing in that which is eternal, investing in lives, sowing the seed, watering the seed with your prayers, crying out to God that God would raise up harvesters for the harvest and send forth workers, and that there would be a great harvest in these last days. Amos, an interesting passage in Amos 8, says, The days are coming, says the Lord, I'm going to send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to west, or north to east, excuse me, and shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and they shall not find it. Harvest is past. Summer is ended, and we are not saved. Paul said in 2 Corinthians, I appeal to you, brothers, not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. There are many people that you know, that I know, that are open if we will take the time and the investment that it takes to go to them and just share with them our lives and encourage them that they might know the truth, that they might know the fellowship of the Father, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, and the salvation that God desires, that we might bear fruit, because it comes down to this. How much fruit? No fruit. Some of us maybe don't have any fruit. For whatever reason, you've never taken steps to begin to share with others, or your life maybe has things in it. Maybe your life is full of thorns or rocks, and let the Lord, Spirit of God speak to you about what needs to be removed from your heart that the Word of God might enter your heart so that you can begin to bear fruit for the Lord Jesus. And do you have a little fruit now? Jesus says, listen, I want you to have more fruit. And if you have a lot of fruit now, if you're in ministry, if you're doing a great work, praise the Lord for that. But God says, listen, I want you to please the Father. I want you to have much fruit to, for my kingdom. How much fruit do you want to have? How much? How much do you desire to please the Lord, to honor Him? In this, the Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciple. Let's pray. Father God, we stand or are seated here this morning, having heard your word that you have spoken, 
And we thank you for it. And we ask that you would, Father, raise up in this body individuals who will bear much fruit for your kingdom. If there are some who do not know the privilege it is to bear fruit for you, let them hear the word of God that says they can bear fruit for you. And those that are in ministry involved in different aspects of, of Christian life, let them bear much fruit for you, Father, to honor and glorify your name. Help us each one to look into our hearts. And if there's things of this world, thorns of riches or, or stones of philosophies, ideas that maybe are not godly, help us to allow the Spirit of God to soften our hearts and remove the stones and the things that are not right with us. Father, we confess our sins, our need for you, and that, Lord, we have not borne fruit when we should have or could have, and that, Lord, we have often neglected to allow the Spirit of God to work in our hearts through us. But now, Father, this morning, we open our hearts at you, crying out, Father, not only for ourselves, but for our children and for those around us, that you might speak to us and to them through us, so that, Lord, you might receive from us bountiful fruit, to the honor and praise and glory of your great name. These things we ask in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.